Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. That's a joke. It's a joke. It's a bad one. Man, I'm glad y'all laughed. I have been here 20 years uh, in San Antonio. I spoke last week in New Braunfels, and Mick Beersbauer, who's uh, there, uh, is a guy that's in the mentoring group that I'm in with, with Mark Absher. And he introduced me as one of the old guys uh, in, their, in the mentoring group. Uh, and I said, man, that, that hurts. But it's true. Uh, I appreciate the blessing of being able to be here. Doug, thank you for inviting me uh, this summer. We, we always... I love coming to MacArthur Park. You know, churches have, uh, y'all, y'all know churches have reputations, right? Word gets around. Y'all have a great reputation in this town. You know, you have a great reputation. I love our partnership in the gospel. My, my hope and goal, and I think Mark's too, is that as time goes by, we, we try to do more things together uh, in, for the kingdom here uh, in San Antonio. So just thank you so much for, for inviting me. Uh, and we're going to get into the Word tonight. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. And I'm going to start by just reading the text, the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 16. And you can follow along on the screen. My lovely wife Kim is, is doing the, the clicker tonight, so um, I appreciate her coming with me tonight. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in and asked him, What's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What am I going to do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. And then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, he will give you property of your own. No one, no servant, can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can I tell you that this is just kind of a, can you say this about the Bible? This is kind of a weird text. It's kind of a strange text. And I think if we're going to understand it, we have to step back a little bit and take a a bit of a broader picture. Uh, And so what I want to do is I'm going to start with something that maybe you've seen. There have been several iterations of this on on the web, but they're property laws of a toddler. Have you all ever seen these? Listen to what, what the property laws of a toddler are. 
And if you've got a child or had a child, you will recognize the truthfulness of all of this. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. The point that I'm trying to make is that it's pretty obvious that the desire to acquire is a pretty strong impulse in our lives as humans. And it also starts at a very early age. And I would love to tell you that as we grow older and as we mature, that that we kind of leave behind this immature behavior that we engage in sometimes when, when we're... We're acquiring things, but the truth is, as we get older, sometimes our behavior in this regard gets even worse. In fact, we live in a culture that more and more defines greatness in terms of wealth and possessions. I mean, you have to be wealthy to be great. Now, the question is, why do we have this drive in us to want so much stuff? And I think the reason is, is because we believe some myths about wealth that I think we need to acknowledge as we start this process this evening of looking at this text. And, the, the, and, and there are two of them. I'll share both of them with you. The, the, the first one is, is that wealth can bring happiness. Because that's what we've bought into in our culture. We've bought into the idea that, that plenty can make us happy. And so people believe that, and so they act the way they act. They behave accordingly. And yet if we would stop for just a moment and and think about our own life experiences, we'd realize that this is not true, or at least it's not universally true. We'd recognize that there are some people we know that have a lot of stuff, but they don't seem to be very happy. And we know people who don't have much of anything at all. And they seem to be very happy. And if we just take a step back and think about it, we'd really recognize that that more stuff doesn't mean that we're going to be happier. Sometimes it means we'll be even more unhappy. And that's what the Bible says. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 15, verses 16 and 17, It says, it's better to be poor and respect the Lord than to be wealthy and have much trouble. It's better to eat vegetables with those who love you than to eat meat with those who hate you. I mean, money can only operate in a very temporary way. We know this. I I mean, money can, can bring us companions, but it can't really make us friends with people. I mean, money can bring us, we can buy solitude with money, but money doesn't ultimately bring us peace. We can buy favors with money, but we can't find forgiveness with money. 
And when we start thinking about the real soul issues of life, the things that are deep down inside of us, those things that, that we're drawn to and that motivate us and that, that, that really truly drive us, us in life, we understand how limited a commodity wealth really is. And so what the Bible says is that you're never going to be happy until you learn to be content with what you have. Right? I mean, just one example, Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, You keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And the implication, and we know this, is that money can leave us and that money will forsake us, but that God does not. And so the Bible says that wealth can't bring happiness, but that's a strong myth in our culture. In fact, it's so strong that we Christians... We, we take this myth and we baptize it and we turn it into our version of the myth, the Christian version of the myth, which is number two, and that is that wealth is proof of God's favor. It's the idea that if you'll just be faithful to God, He will shower you with all kinds of blessings. We call it the prosperity gospel. And you know, you probably have heard some of the people, and I don't want to, you know some of the people who preach this around our culture and in our nation. People like Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and, and Joyce Meyer and Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes all, and, and Benny Hinn. They say if you'll just be faithful enough, God will shower you with blessings. So let me, let me say a couple of things about the prosperity gospel. Number one, you need to know that that's a uniquely Western theology because prosperity gospel doesn't really work in Africa, in the poor nations in Africa or the slums of India. In fact, I've got a couple of pictures here. Let me show you. On that side, that's our river walk. And on the other side, that's a river walk in Sierra Leone in Africa. And I'm here to tell you that any gospel that will work in San Antonio but won't work in Sierra Leone, that's not the true gospel. What these guys preach, the prosperity gospel, is not the true gospel. The other reason I know that, number two, is because Jesus and the disciples and the apostles never experienced the prosperity that they preach today. They never experienced it. I mean, what was that Jesus said? Jesus said, birds of the air have nests and foxes of the ground have holes, but the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. And so the first disciples didn't know any of this. Scripture does promise that God's going to meet our needs, but it does not make a connection between faithfulness and prosperity. Here's the question. How did we make that connection in our culture? How did this particular myth make its way into the church and become as popular as it is today. And I'll tell you, I think it's complicated, but I'll tell you one reason that I think. I think it's because it gives many Christians permission to live indulgently and not feel guilty. Now, Jesus did absolutely affirm that God is the source of all of our blessings, but any biblical view of wealth has to take into account everything that Jesus said which gets us back to Luke chapter 16 and the text that we're looking at this evening. Jesus had a lot to say about wealth. And let me just, as we, and again, this is still introductory stuff, but let me just kind of skip a stone 
through the Gospel of Luke and listen to what Jesus says. Luke chapter 6, 20, 24, and 30. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, you punch them in the nose and you take it back. No. You don't demand it back. Now those are some strange perspectives on acquisition, aren't they? Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 25. Jesus said, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Some versions say his very soul. In Luke chapter 12, 15, it says, Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed, because a man's life, a person's life, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In our culture, we say, no, that's not true. It's the opposite. A man's life does consist in the abundance of his possessions. But Jesus says, no, that's not how it operates. And then a little bit later in that same chapter, in that story about the man who had barns and tore them down and he built, he built even bigger barns, God says to that man, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus concludes that parable by saying, this is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. And then finally, I want to I share one other passage, Luke chapter 18, verses 24 and 25, a passage that is that is danced around and rationalized away more than any, any other words I think Jesus ever uttered. He looked at this young man that we call the rich young ruler and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we rationalize that away, but, but you know Luke was a physician and what he uses, the word for needle here is a surgical needle. It's a pretty radical view of wealth. And I'll tell you, it flies in the face of everything our culture believes about life and liberty and the purchase of happiness. So what's Jesus saying? Is he saying that it's wrong to acquire wealth? Well, I want you to really hear me clearly this evening. Jesus didn't beat around the bush here. What he said was, wealth can be absolutely fatal to your soul. Jesus said that there are going to be people who miss life with God forever because they could not give up the acquire, the, the desire to acquire. However, And maybe this surprises you. Jesus did not say that disciples should necessarily avoid wealth. He taught instead that we need to capture and subdue wealth and use it for kingdom purposes. And that, I think, is Jesus' point in Luke 16 when he tells this incredible story about this manager. This guy who was mismanaging his master's accounts. And the the master called him into account and said... 
you're not going to have a job any longer. And the manager panics and then he makes a plan to change the debts that were owed to his master so that the people who owed the debts would then welcome them him into their house. And you read this story and what you expect it to say is, and so the master took that wicked servant and threw him out into outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But it doesn't end that way. It says the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And you say, wait, what? Wait, what? That's not the way it's supposed to end. Now, I'll tell you, I don't think Jesus is commending the man's dishonesty, but I think he is commending this guy for his shrewdness. And Jesus says, the people in this world are more shrewd in their dealings for what they want than are the people, the children of light. And then Jesus goes on in the rest of Luke 16, the rest of the chapter, and he specifically talks about how we view and use money, wealth. So what I want to do, and maybe we'll finish early tonight, what I want to do is I want to share with you the three things that Jesus says in this passage about wealth and about money. And this is what he says. Number one, he says wealth is a tool. Wealth is a tool. Luke chapter 16, verse 9, he said, I tell you, you use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, don't misunderstand, Jesus is not saying that somehow you can buy wealth here or that you can somehow pay off God because the only thing that can ransom a sinner is the blood of Jesus. But Jesus is saying that a disciple should use his wealth to do things that last for eternity. Now, there's supposed to be a picture of Forest Lawn Cemetery. Yeah, go to the next one. One more. There you go. Anybody been to Forest Lawn Cemetery in L.A.? I mean, yeah, it's, it's where all the stars are buried. And everybody's, you know, everybody's buried there, and, and it's a big fancy place. And there's a story that comes from Forest Lawn about a man who died with a, an estate of $200,000. And he was estranged from his family, and he didn't want them to get any of his money. And so he decided as he was approaching death that he was going to give himself the biggest funeral that you'd ever seen. So he got the, the best music. He got the nicest casket. He did it up as much as you could possibly do it up, but he still only spent $100,000. And so he had $100,000 left over, and he was trying to decide, what am I going to do with all this money? He decided that, that, that after his death, he would, he would order his lawyer to order for his funeral $100,000 worth of orchids. And that's what he did. $100,000 worth of, of orchids at a funeral that only three people attended. Now I'm telling you, that's a metaphor for wasting and squandering wealth. But I think to myself, how many times does God look at us and see kind of a similar thing? Where God heaps blessings, does give us blessings, and everything we have comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. And, and He gives us all this, and then we squander it and we waste it on things that ultimately don't, don't matter. Jesus says this shrewd manager influenced people for the future. And that that's what we should do with, with our money. Jesus said, I wish my children could be that shrewd. I wish they would use their wealth to influence people for the future. I wonder if Jesus isn't saying something here that's similar to what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. 
Y'all know these words. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus' point here is not that we can take our money with us. His point is that we can send it on ahead. And that the way we do that is by investing in people because people are the only thing that lasts for eternity. Here's my interpretation of verse 9, Luke 16, verse 9. He's saying, you use the means that God gave you to bless the lives of others so that then when you die and your money is useless, you're going to be received into heaven as graciously as you received others. In other words, folks, heaven ought to be full of people who cheer when you get there instead of gasping out of shock. (laughs) Now, I think... The next story in Luke 16 confirms that conclusion because Jesus tells another story about two men who died, a rich man and a man named Lazarus. The rich man had all kinds of wealth in this life and Lazarus was right there at his doorstep and Lazarus died and went to heaven and the rich man died and went to hell. Why did he go to hell? We don't know anything about this guy other than the fact that there was someone at his doorstep that needed help, and he didn't help them. That's all we know. The rich man saw wealth as something to store and hoard instead of something to use to help. Or think of it this way. We all have garages that have tools in them. What good is a tool if it's never used? I have a relative who loves and has the money to buy all kinds of tools, but he won't use them because he's afraid they'll get dirty or they'll be broken. You think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. A tool that's not used is worthless. Tools only become valuable when they're used, and that's what Jesus says about wealth. Wealth was meant by God for us to to use, to make friends, to affect people for the future so that when we go to heaven, people welcome us there. So money is a tool. Wealth is a tool. Number two, Jesus taught that wealth is a trust. Because the next few verses read like this. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, what we have to understand here is that a manager or a steward has to understand two things. Number one, he has to understand that what he manages is not ultimately his own. And number two, eventually he's going to have to give an account of what it was that he managed for someone else. And that's why you need to be shrewd. The word shrewd is another word for wise. It's the same word that Jesus uses in in Matthew chapter 25 when he tells the story about the the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. Those five virgins lived their lives understanding that they had a a, a date with a future destiny. And so they lived accordingly. And I think that's what it means to be shrewd. 
I think what Jesus is saying here is that people in the world are shrewd with their money. They have a material agenda, and that's all they want to do, and they live that way with purpose and focus and dedication. And Jesus is saying, why don't my children, why don't you, my brothers and sisters, be as shrewd with your wealth so that you can reach your goal? And again, not that you can buy off God, but that someday you'll stand before God and God will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus said, if that's what you do, God's going to give you even greater wealth. If you've been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, they'll give you true riches, and if you haven't, he won't. I think that's why God did not give the Pharisees the gospel. And in context here, in verse 14, it says that they sneered at Jesus' teachings because they loved money. What is it that's most important? God's not going to give true riches to people who can't manage temporary riches well. So money, wealth is a tool and wealth is a trust. And then number three, wealth is a test. It is a test of your true allegiance. Some of the most challenging words Jesus has ever said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Literally, mammon. Now, I want you to look at those verses. Because what Jesus does not say is, you cannot serve two masters well. What he says is you cannot serve two masters at all. You ever wonder why Jesus talks so much about money? One out of of every six verses uh, or, or verses that he spoke is about money. Over half the stories deal that he told deal some way with with money. I mean, he spoke more about money than any other subject except the kingdom of God. He talked more about money than he talked about faith. Talked more about money than he talked about prayer. Jesus was so interested in the subject of money that one day he just sat outside on the temple grounds all day long and just watched people put money in the plate. Why did Jesus spend so much time talking about money? Well, I think it's because Jesus understood something that we don't. See, we look at money and wealth and possessions and we look at them as kind of, uh, they're neutral. They're not, they're, they're amoral. But that's not how Jesus thought of them. Jesus thought of wealth and money and possessions as a rival God called mammon. It's a rival God that wants your worship. It wants your absolute total allegiance. It wants you to think about Him all the time. He wants you to spend all of your effort and your energy trying to acquire it and store it, and possess it. And Jesus says you cannot serve both the money God and Jehovah God. So, I mean, money is a tremendous test because it's not content until it is your life's obsession that that's all you think about. There's a true story of a, a preacher who was in his office one day, and in, in, into his office, guys, people drop in at church offices all the time. This guy came in, and he came into the preacher's study, and he sat down, and he, he showed him a picture that he had bought. And it's a, it's a picture from a couple of decades ago. Some of y'all may, may remember this, but this picture of Jesus up, up in the clouds, and, and, uh, and he's talking about the, that he, he spent money, and he bought this picture, and the preacher's thinking to himself, now here's a guy 
who has suddenly come face to face with the possibility that God is real and he wants to get his life right. And so the preacher started to speak about that, into this, speak this truth into this guy's life. And the guy held up his hand and said, no, 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 I don't care about any of that stuff. I'm just thinking if I've got a real picture of Jesus, I'm about to be very rich. Now think about that a minute. Here's a guy who thought he had incontrovertible evidence of the existence of God. And all he could think about was how he could make money with it. Now, I detest that guy's priorities, but you know what, folks? I think Jesus would admire his commitment. Because that guy loved his God. He loved it with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, and with all his mind. And I think Jesus would say, I wish the children of the light could be just as passionate and just as committed and just as zealous for their God as the children of the world are for theirs. It's a test. I don't think there's anything that provides a more visible testimony to your commitment of God than how you deal with wealth. And so I guess if I were going to try to sum up what I think Jesus has said about wealth in our discussions tonight and in my sermon tonight, I would say that what Jesus says is you cannot enthrone God in your life until you dethrone money. You cannot be converted to the kingdom of God until you let go of the money God. Now, you can go to church and love money, and you can read your Bible and you can love money. You just can't enter the kingdom of God and love money. A little bit later in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus eats with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And in Luke chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, it says, that Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he had dethroned the money God, and he had entered the kingdom of God. And I read this text, and it makes me realize that I need to do some... I don't know, some internal auditing of my own to look inside my own heart and to see how I view wealth. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for words from Jesus that convict us. We're thankful, Father, that that you show us what it really means to live in the kingdom. And I pray, Father, that as we are convicted and challenged by the words of Jesus this evening, that we'll think about how we view the wealth that we have. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.